Hear now the word of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, would you send your spirit to shine the light of your countenance upon us, and especially on your word tonight. Would you build up your body, the church, by using your word to feed us and fill us and equip us to be your people this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Just sort of a thought experiment. What would you do or how would you spend the remainder of your time if I told you that today was the last day ever? Um, What if I told you tomorrow would not be here? This really is the end. I've heard unbelievers talk about this. They make movies about what if this was the last day ever. Um, and it's so interesting to, to see how somebody answers this question how, and, and what it actually says about them and about their deepest commitments. Um, but if this really was the last day ever, if this was the end of all things, wouldn't you do things differently? Wouldn't you do things differently with the remaining uh, five and a half hours before midnight? Um, you know, I could imagine, you can imagine why you would, of course, right? Would I wax my car? Probably not, you know? Um, I mean, my car's going to disappear soon. Would I, would I spend the remaining hours of my last day endlessly swiping through pages on Facebook and Twitter or Instagram? Would I bother with a lot of silly trivialities that I, that we often mess with? Probably not. Um, would I play one more video game? Probably not. Um, I hope not. I've heard unbelievers answer the question before. They think this through. What would, I, what would I do if I found out I only had 24 hours to live? And you hear them give answers. I, some of them say, I would go do drugs. Uh, I would go get drunk before the end. You know, others say, well, I would go find a lover right away. Um, others are more sentimental. They say, I would go spend the final hours with my, my family. But I think the answers that we give sort of show our priorities, they are heart revealing. I'm not necessarily saying there's a right answer. I'm sure there are a variety of ways that we could spend our final hours. But I think that what Peter is telling us here is that our answers give our priorities. Our answer to the question shows what matters most to us. And, and Peter tonight is setting before us this reality the fact that, that, that we, the things we spend so much time on, that we put so much hope in are all things if they are in this world that are ending and they ought to be things that sort of change our perspective on how we live and what we love and how we prioritize uh, things that our neighbors might care about or things that our neighbors might not care about and so this reality that all things are ending should change how we value our time and whether we invest in others or not. Peter isn't telling us that nothing matters. He's not telling us that, well, we should stop taking care of our cars. He's not telling us that we shouldn't care about others. He's not 
telling us that we shouldn't uh, engage in any recreational activities whatsoever. Um, He's not telling us that we should be nihilists. Nihilists believe that there is ultimately no purpose in life and that everything does disappear and whatever takes place in this world does not matter. That is not Peter. Uh, He isn't telling us to stop taking care of ourselves or taking care of our responsibilities. He isn't telling us that providing for our families or taking care of our property is a waste of time because the Bible is decidedly not a nihilistic book. That tells us that our lives and actions don't matter. We should just let everything fall apart around us because it's all going to burn up and disappear someday. But the Bible is also a book that teaches us where our belongings and where our lives factor in the order of things. And so in a sense, Peter takes a glance at the world around us. He looks around and he sees what the world values. He sees what they love and he turns them over. Because for the world, all that can possibly really matter is sentimentalism, pleasure, distraction, trivialities, frivolous minimizing and joking about things that actually really do matter. And Peter pushes us away from the trivialities, away from trivializing the world, and he presses us toward serious and sober consideration of this place where God has put us what is happening to it, where it is going, and why we are here in it right now. And so I want to do two things tonight. I I want to, as we look at what Peter does, I want to see what Peter does here. He gives us an end time perspective, and then he pushes us, and maybe this is unexpected, you would think he would do something else, but then he pushes us toward end time hospitality. So end time perspective, which gives way to an end time hospitality. So the first thing Peter offers us before he gets into application is a principle that is meant to feed the application of the passage. In other words, if you understand the main thing he has to say, you're going to get the application that he makes. You're going to understand why he does it and why it follows. And that is end time perspective. So, see, this is a very practical passage. It's a passage about action. It's about, about the way we live. It's a passage about, uh, uh, um, about how we treat others. But to get there and to understand the driving force of Peter's logic, we have to talk about eschatology. <laughs> because, because his whole argument tonight about how we should live, how we should love others, all of it is premised on eschatology. Because look what he says. He says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore. And then he gives his application. And he talks about how we should live because of that. So if we don't get the the part where he says, the end of all things is at hand, it's it's just going to sound like a cliche to say the application. What he's going to get to in the second point. So Peter is persuaded. And I'm persuaded too. Peter is persuaded that studying the last things will help us how we live the now things. Studying the last things will help us live the now things. So your study, in other words, is going to bleed over into your practice. Um, What you believe about what is going to happen to all of us is going to change the way you treat other people, the way you treat your neighbors, the way you treat fellow saints and believers in the church. 
And so that's why it's worth the mental effort that it takes to understand what he means when he says, we're in the last days. The end of all things is at hand. That's what eschatology is. Eschatology is the study of the last things. That's what the word means. Um, And we don't think much about this, um, but we often think that to live in the end times, if someone says we're living in the end times, they usually mean something by it. And usually when they say we're living in the end times, what they mean is um, the world's going down the toilet. (laughs) Everything's getting worse. Jesus must return any moment now. That's usually what people mean when they say we're living in the end times. But think about this now. Um, Try and strip away some of the assumptions about that. And listen to this. Biblically speaking, to live in the end times means to live in the final period of God's activity on the earth. So the Bible actually tells us that we are in the end times right now. But it was saying that even during the time when it was written. So think about this. The author of Hebrews, in the very first verse of the book of Hebrews, he tells us that the days we live in, the days when Jesus has come, are the last days. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So if you had read the book of Hebrews back in the first century, when it was almost certainly written, and you had read that first verse, you would have said, we are in the last days. You would have said that. There is no more, and this is what is meant by it, at least in part. There is no more sacrifice. There is no more redemption. There is no more that Christ needs to do. There's nothing more for God to do than for Christ to return now. James, in his book, tells people that he's writing to that they've been laying up treasure in the last days. He's not saying that in the last days you'll get treasure. He's saying right now, while you've been laying up treasure, you are living in the last days. Uh, Second Peter, he says that people should expect to see scoffing and people following their unsinful desires because, he says, it's the last days. In Acts 2.17, Peter quotes from the book of Joel, and it says there, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then what happened in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, he poured out his spirit on all flesh. In other words, he's saying, this is the last days. We're living in the last days. And so there's this insistence in Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, that now that Christ has come, we're in the end times, we're in the last days, we are experiencing the end of all things. And so when we think of the end times, we shouldn't think of fire and brimstone, hail and blood moons and all that stuff. Um, It really means God is finished bringing new revelation. He's done everything there that needs to be done to redeem us. It means that Christ has come. The Messiah is here. And all we're waiting on now is for the gospel to go to all the world and for Jesus to return. That's what it means. And it means we're in the end times right now. And so we're living in the last days. And who knows how much longer that will last. The, the last days could last for another thousand years, or they could last another week. We, we don't know how long the last days are going to be. But one thing that Peter wants us to do is to embrace this truth. And, and I want you to hear it, and I want you to take it and embrace it too. He says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Have you embraced that? 
how will you live now, now that the end of all things is at hand? What will that mean for you? What's that going to mean for your relationships? What's that going to mean for the people that you interact with? How are you going to treat other people? How are you going to treat strangers? How are you going to treat fellow believers? Well, Peter has some ideas. They're not comprehensive. He doesn't say everything we should do, but he mentions a few things. And specifically, he says, because we're in the last days, we should be sober and self-controlled. Sober is... It's a seriousness. Sobriety means that you're, you're a serious person and a self-controlled person is a serious person. Uh, life is serious. So we, we, above all people, ought to know that, that, that we should be joyful. We should be glad-hearted. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be serious. We can actually be joyful and serious at the same time. And, and Peter has talked about joy And he's talked about rejoicing in this book. But here he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. The world around us isn't sober-minded. The world around us is a wild, insane, mad party. And not in the good way. I was listening to some music in the car the other day. And the song that I was listening to, admittedly, was a little glum. Uh, and my daughter was listening to the lyrics and we were listening together. I told her, listen to those lyrics. And it was the, the lyrics were sort of like, uh, we're all going to die someday and stand on the shores of eternity. It wasn't a Christian song, but it was somebody basically saying life is, tra- is, is temporary and it's not going to last for very long. And I have this sort of disposition already, but I basically told her the, the thing I hate most in music is just telling me to enjoy stuff. I've got another pickup truck. I've got another uh, party I'm going to. I've got another vacation I'm going on and just singing about stuff, which is largely what modern music is about. And I just, I just told my daughter, I said, I like songs that tell me I'm going to die someday. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff I listen to. And then everybody else uh, kind of wonders, man, you have some really grim taste in music. But truthfully, I, I want to be made sober I, I don't want to get caught up in the rat race everyone else is into. I already have that pull in my own heart. And that sort of music just draws me out and makes me want to do that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, and I, when I think about sobriety, I think about once when I was a kid, I went, I went camping with some friends. And my friends were making terrible decisions. I didn't even know they were making terrible decisions because I was so naive. Uh, my friends were drinking. My friends were uh, doing drugs and I was standing over in the corner. I had no clue what was going on. And it's almost like they knew not to come to me with this stuff. And, and it was, I wasn't a Christian yet. I wasn't a Christian. I just, I was just a timid kid, you know, and very naive. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do this. So I went to sleep. And I remember hearing my truck. And it was driving around, around the little pond that we had camped out at. And I remember going outside and my truck was gone. And my, my lunatic friends had gotten in my truck and they were driving it around the lake. And I got very upset and I finally got them out of my truck. And then I look over at the lake and they're dumping gasoline in the lake and they're lighting it on fire and they're running into the lake and they're running through the gasoline. And I think to myself, I'm about to see all my friends die right in front of me. And I'm not going to be able to do anything about it, uh, which they didn't die. But I remember thinking, man, these guys are fools, but they don't know it. 
But they don't know it because they're not sober-minded. And, you know, the reality is Peter says, we of all people, of all people, we ought to be sober-minded and we ought to be clear-headed. We ought to be able to see through the madness of the world that we live in and know better than to get into it as well because it sucks us in. So we do look out and we think all of this is coming to an end and here you are acting like you are going to live forever. We should be like the designated driver at the party, the person people can depend on. Even if everybody else falls apart, we're going to hold it together because they need us to be. And Peter is saying we're at the end. The end of all things is at hand. We can't afford to fall apart now. And so the application here isn't don't drink. That's not the application. The application here is don't become part of the world. We should live in the world and we should see through its madness rather than getting drawn into it. Why? Because Peter says the end of all things is at hand and life is serious business. And that means self-control. Not the funnest topic. It means sobriety. It means seriousness. It means understanding the day in which we live and that everything is going to go away someday. We mustn't join the culture. We mustn't join the party. And I use the word party and people think, well, that sounds sad, but this kind of party is not the kind of party you want to be part of. That's the self-destructive cycle that defines life in the times we live in. We have to live in this place without being sucked into it. That's the call Peter gives to us here. He says, don't be lured. Um, Almost makes you think of the story of Odysseus when he was... Uh, hearing when he and his, uh, his crew were, were, were going through the Aegean Sea, they could hear the cry of the sirens. And what did they do? But they tied themselves to the mast so that they would not be able to go. They tied themselves to the mast and in desperation. And in, uh, if I remember the story correctly, one of the crew was able to get free. And of course, he went to the sirens and was consumed. And Peter says, life is deadly serious. We can be joyful and we can be serious all at once. That's the call that Peter gives to us here. Be in the world, don't be of the world. And so the way he does this is he does it with an end times perspective. He says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, all these things I'm telling you need to be done. It is crucial. That's the motivation. That's the thing that feeds everything else. But the question is, he's given us the motivation. The end of all things is at hand, but how does he apply it? Well, that's the second half of the message. End times hospitality. Now, that sound feels like such a turn, doesn't it? Uh, I've just been talking about how we're all going to die someday and all of this is going to go away. And then I say, be hospitable. Uh, It doesn't feel like it follows. And yet it does, because let me sort of make the case. Let's follow Peter here. Um, end times hospitality shows up in two ways. It shows up in how we treat fellow believers, and it shows up in how we treat unbelievers. Because ultimately what, what Peter is saying here is that, okay, I've told you that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, how are you going to live? Well, the human population breaks down into two groups, believers and unbelievers. So how are you going to treat them? Well, in the immediate context, he's really concerned with how we're going to treat Christians. So in verse 7, he says this, The end of all things is at hand. 
Then he tells us, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. And then in verse 8, Peter says something profound. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he really attaches two motivations to to our hospitality. Not only do we show it because the end of all things is at hand, but because it's an expression of our love. We love other believers. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we should be hospitable people. Um, You know, sharing a meal in the Bible is actually a really big deal. Some of the most important things that happened in Scripture happened over dinner. Think about this. Uh, Abraham invites the travelers, one of whom happens to be the Lord himself, into his home and they share a meal in Genesis 18. Uh, Think about David. David promises to show hospitality to one of Saul's descendants, Mephibosheth. Remember sad Mephibosheth with his broken feet? And he promises to show grace to him the rest of his life. That happens in 2 Samuel 9. Or think of Jesus. Jesus, not only did they share the Last Supper together, this deeply important meal, um, but when Jesus rose from the dead, he made breakfast for the disciples in John 21. And there they were by the Sea of Galilee, and they shared this meal together. Then think about Acts chapter 1. Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, and he does it over a meal together. Eugene Peterson says, it is striking how much of Jesus' life is told in settings defined by meals. So when we show hospitality to believers, we're not just obeying God. We're, we're testifying something to the watching world, even to our own children. We're testifying that there is a fellowship and a connection there, and our, our kids see it. When I was... Very young. I was probably six or seven. I'm just guessing based on the house we lived in at the time. But I remember one day I I got home from school and there was a strange man sitting in our house and he had a giant cross. And the man had a beard and I thought Jesus was in our house. When I was a little kid, that's what I thought. I thought Jesus was in our house. And he was this guy who was carrying his cross across the entire country. And he had made it to Kansas. Now, I don't remember which side of the country he started in. But, you know, if you made it to Kansas, you're doing pretty good. That's halfway. And, and I just remember, I don't remember the man saying anything. I don't remember any of the conversation. I don't remember anything. I think that my mother probably was a little bit hesitant. And my dad just felt like I have to put this guy up for the night. I have to let this guy stay at our house. And looking back, I think to myself, are you crazy? You don't know this guy. That cross might be a front. You, you can't trust anybody. You know, that's, that's my instinct as a father. And yet I just remember that my dad showed hospitality to this man. And I, and I don't remember any of the other details. But I think to myself, that made an impression on little kids. The little kids in our household, they learned something that day. They learned, Dad believes this man is a believer, and it's important for us to show kindness to this man. That was over 30 years ago, and I'm still thinking about it. That was over 30 years ago, and that hospitality has still stuck with me. We should show hospitality, says Peter, because the end of all things is at hand. Another reality we need to reckon with is the fact that we live in a society where everyone is spread out. 
Um, it's not like we all live in the same street. I mean, if you think about it, most of us do not live that close together. Uh, most of us live at least a 10-minute drive from each other, and some of us live 30 minutes apart from each other. And so hospitality within the body of Christ, I think at Pearl PCA, probably doesn't look all that spontaneous. Um, and if that's true, then we have got to be people who make plans with each other. Uh, they, we spend time with each other. We have meals with each other. Our kids play together every now and then. We have to be part of each other's lives. Um, and, and we really do. Loneliness is an extraordinary epidemic in the Western world. Vox was running an article recently about how young people will move away to big cities thinking they will make all sorts of friends in this big crowded metropolis and then they end up terribly lonely. There was a girl that moved to San Francisco and she lived there for, she said she lived there for over a year and never made one friend. And then she went to, she went to work, she rode the bus home, she spent the evening watching Netflix, then she went to work the next day. And that was the cycle that she was in. And the article presented the solution to her loneliness as a business. There's a startup, and instead of saying, well, she should be part of the church, she needs to get plugged in with, with believers, she needs to hear the gospel, instead the solution was, there's a business that connects you with a roommate, and you guys can share a house, and it'll force you to live in community, and then you won't be lonely anymore. So the answer was, let's start up a business that can solve your loneliness problems. So this sort of way of sort of mechanizing and charging for something that should be a part of normal human life. And it's sort of the world's way of solving these problems as they come up. And yet God has given us a ready-made solution to loneliness. It's called the church. But that only works if we live as the church and get into each other's lives. And not just on Sundays, but during the week. And, and we have to love each other and show hospitality. So, so don't kid yourself that this isn't a problem in the South. It, it is a problem in the South. Loneliness is a problem in the South. Most of our houses are in suburban areas. They require vehicles to get around. So people congregate where? In the backyard, right? Away from each other. We usually put up fences between our houses. And so we don't have to see the neighbors. Uh, we don't have sidewalks. They're, they're almost non-existent here. And so if people want to walk, they, they walk in the street. It's usually not safe. And so people eventually opt not to walk in this walk at all. And so we have loneliness being a very serious problem, especially in the summertime. People hide out. They draw the shades. Many people feel desperately lonely and isolated, especially in the South during the summer. So here's the question. Are you showing hospitality to other believers? Are you being purposeful about getting together with them? Are you... Showing hospitality outside of your age group. Are, are, are you an older person? Are you an older couple? And you really don't know that younger couple. Maybe they've recently joined the church. It is very important that you do not assume that because you aren't the same age that they aren't for you. Um, I have loved getting to share meals with older couples in the church. And I am sure there are younger people in the church who would love it as well. Um, Besides, you ladies know how to cook. You ladies know how to cook. Um, and the same thing goes for younger couples. Are you younger couples showing hospitality to people who are older than your age group? Because in a church with over 100 members, there are lots and lots of opportunities for Christians to love one another 
through the grace of Christian hospitality. Exactly what Peter's talking about here. So if there's, think about this, if there's someone in the church that you don't know very well, it is a sure sign God has given you someone to show hospitality to. Invite them over. Share a meal. Share a cup of tea. Practice hospitality. Invite them for lunch or dinner or go to play together. Have your kids play together. Get to know them. And, and, and by the way, if you haven't been invited to someone's house yet or if you're a bit of an introvert, don't wait to be invited. Do the inviting. Do the inviting. Step out. Um, and I'm being very practical here. Get a copy of the church directory. Make notes next to names. Who have you invited over for a meal? Are there people you've never invited over for a meal? Are there people you, who have never seen your house? They've never been inside of your house? Write down a month next to their names. Make a point of planning something with them. Um, if you have invited them and they've passed, have you asked again? Have you been persistent? See, see, the reality is relationships take effort. If we don't live right next to each other, we are not naturally going to be forming those relationships. So we have to take the, the effort. We have to step out. We have to work at it. Um, relationships do not just fall into your lap. Not usually. Especially Christian relationships. The end of all things is at hand. Show hospitality. Now this passage is Peter's call for believers to show hospitality to one another. But I I want us to see this evening. The call to hospitality is bigger than just showing it to other believers. But it's never smaller than that either. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. You should at least be showing hospitality to other Christians. That is the bare minimum of what Peter says. That's the low bar that Peter sets, that God sets for us in the Bible. Are you at least showing hospitality to believers? But biblically, the call to show hospitality is bigger than that because Hebrews 13, 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. There is that command there. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Probably the thing that haunts me the most is people that maybe I should have helped and I decided not to because I didn't want to get taken. I think about verses like this and I wonder, I wonder if I turned the Lord away. I don't know if that is a strange thing for me to confess, but I do sometimes wonder that. He says, we need to love strangers. David Strain was speaking to the women at RTS one time and he said, we must show hospitality to the weirdos. I like, that's the only word I can say in Scottish. Weirdos. So he says, we need to show love to the weirdos, is what Dr. Uh, Dr. Strain said. And so we should show hospitality to strangers. We should show hospitality to people who are outside the household of faith. Um, there are not a lot of books, at least that I've seen, about Christian hospitality. But there is one really excellent one by Rosaria Butterfield, and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And I know some folks, they've read the book, they say, this is too radical. The, the sort of hospitality that she proposes is too far, it's too difficult to do. She, uh, she talks about the importance of radical hospitality, she uses this phrase. And she doesn't just mean uh, when it's on the schedule for someone to come over, but especially she means show hospitality when it's not on the schedule. Show hospitality when it's a little bit inconvenient. 
Um, the sort of hospitality that it really can't be planned out because disasters and trouble can't always be planned out. Um, especially if you want to be good neighbors. The sort of hospitality is something you especially show to your neighbors. She, she tells a story in her book about how they ended up befriending this reclusive neighbor. He was a, a man named Hank. And he is this recluse. She compared him to Boo Radley in the To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and she said, she said, when, I, when, when he moved into the neighborhood, I was not excited because he wasn't the sort of neighbor that we wanted him to be. We wanted a, a, a good neighbor. Um, this guy didn't cut his grass. And so the city would, would fine him after three months. But by then his grass had turned into this terrifying uh, refuge for rodents and snakes, you know. Uh, this is a man who had a giant pit bull who she said weighed 100 pounds. And whenever anyone would see his pit bull, whose name was Tank, yes, Hank and Tank, he would, he would get off the leash. And since he was 100 pounds, he was terrifying. Um, people, he played loud music. He dismantled his front door lock so that when people came to complain about him, he couldn't hear them ringing. Um, she talks about how they prayed for Hank and they would sometimes hear the neighbors gossip about him and they would be suspicious about him. And she would always rebuke them and say, no, you don't know that. You don't know this man. You can't talk that way about him. And so she would sort of do her part as a neighbor. But the thing that finally brought them together with Hank was Tank escaped one day. This hundred pound pit bull escaped and he was gone for days. And Hank was so desperate, he went to all the neighbors. They decided to help him, so they got uh, you know, uh, signs, and they hung him up all over the neighborhood. And eventually, Tank was found, and a new relationship was struck up with Hank, the bad neighbor. And as they got to know him, as they shared meals with him, they learned that he was a guy who had really difficult, serious problems. He had post-traumatic stress disorder. He had social anxiety disorder. Just going to knock on their doorbell for him was a terrifying thing. Um, clinical depression, ADHD. He just had this laundry list of problems. And one day the police came to Hank's house and they raided the house. And lo and behold, they found a meth lab in Hank's house. And Rosaria in the book, you know, the way she puts it, she says, we could have responded with fear to Hank. You know, what if the meth lab explodes and takes out my daughter's bedroom with it? How could we have allowed this meth addict into our house to share meals with us and, and share our hearts and share our homes? How could we allow this to happen? She says we could have given in to that way of thinking. But then she reflects. She says that isn't what Jesus calls us to. Instead, the model that Jesus gives us is he spends time with sinners. He shows them love. He shares the gospel of the kingdom with them. And he spent time with, with lepers, Right? And if you're the cautious type, you might say, hey, that's not a good idea. You're going to get leprosy, and then you won't be able to help the lepers at all. So you should stay away, right? What will the neighbors think? They'll think we have leprosy too, and they'll stay away. We have to keep up the right appearances. And yet Jesus didn't live that way. He, he didn't live constantly worrying what people were going to think about his associations with people who were less than himself. He took, he took chances with people who were sketchy and who were weird and who weren't safe. Might it be that 
are evangelistic strategies, right? This is the question you ask the person if they answer the door. You make sure that you hand them the thing. You make sure that you make make eye contact. Make sure you always ask this question, always lead with this question. Then make sure you say this question after that. And we sort of think that's the best way to evangelize people. What if our evangelism techniques are way too complicated and no one can actually keep up with them? Might it be that we should simply be good neighbors and live like Jesus and get to know the people God has placed us around? When we do that, what we're doing is we're earning the right to get to know them and share the gospel with them. And they will know that they are more to us than just a mark. They are people that we have decided to invest in long term with our lives. That's the biblical way that God uses us with our neighbors. Now, I have to admit, I have neighbors that are that in my heart, I think they're kind of weird. Uh, We have a lady in our neighborhood. Her dogs are just attracted to our yard and she doesn't carry baggies with her, you know, and, you know, that person, I just sort of want to nitpick that person. We have another neighbor that every summer, it seems like they let their grass grow two feet tall. And, and, And if I wanted to, I could nitpick every single neighbor that I have. And yet the end of all things is at hand. There's no time to nitpick. Jesus loves the weirdos, right? And, and in scripture, they are the people he seems the most interested in, right? The clear cut, uh, put together people end up being the ones who get the lecture from Jesus and it's the weirdos who end up getting a meal. So what is God telling us tonight? The, th- the things that we have are gifts from God and we don't get to take them with us when we die. The end of all things is at hand. How are you using your faded things to show hospitality? How are you using your faded, faded things to love your neighbors? How, how have you done at reaching out to those in the church and those in your neighborhood? I'm going to end on what Rosaria Butterfield says. She says, those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Our Father, you've given us your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived as an example to show us how to live around others. He loved to share meals. He loved to be around people who needed company and need, most importantly, to know the good news. Would you restore hospitality into the essential rhythm of the church's life and into our lives. Would you protect us from so guarding ourselves and so guarding our time that we miss out on the good that you would have us do to those inside and outside of the body of Christ? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.